This is The Politics of Everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast, so while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. If there ever was a topic that equally could excite, distress, motivate and polarise, it would definitely be this one, money. I was certainly raised in an era when people didn't discuss it openly or candidly for fear of seeming rude or offensive to others. Melissa Brown is a woman who has devoted her entire career to the financial world, namely as an accountant, then as an entrepreneur and now running the money bar. She is well known as an author for memorably titled books such as Fabulous But Broke and her latest, which bleep warning for you children, is called Unfuck Your Finances. As a speaker and media columnist, Melissa calls it like she sees it when when it comes to how we relate to money. So it's no surprise that she was the very first person I thought of to get on this show to discuss the politics of money. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So as a kid, were you aware of money being a big deal or how were your parents' attitudes towards money when you were growing up? Yeah, my dad was an accountant, so I was aware of money growing up because of the field that he was in, but I was also very aware that we didn't have very much. Um, so we're from the Western suburbs and it was the open the cupboard and the sea of black and white. We had hand-me-down clothes. We shopped at St. Vincent de Paul stalls and thrift shops. So I was keenly aware we didn't have anything. And it wasn't until later on, probably in my teenage years, that the new car would occasionally turn up. Um, or we'd go overseas for a holiday and I couldn't understand, well, hang on, I thought we were poor. <laughs> now what's going on? So, and I realised now it was my dad doing tax minimisation and, and making sure he was able to retire at 50 and have the life he wanted. But certainly we didn't understand any of that. It wasn't talked about. And so money for me, what I learned from my parents, unfortunately, despite my dad being super savvy, it was not a whole lot. Wow. That doesn't sound dissimilar to most people's upbringings, I guess, in middle-class Australia. And I even think today when I'm thinking about my own kids, I don't really talk to them that openly about money and finances. And I think the danger is we live in an era now of like plastic money, tap and go. Mm -hmm. And even my five-year-old will say, mum, can we just tap it and get it? So how can we (laughs) maybe improve those early conversations of financial literacy to make sure that we get into good habits early? Because I don't think I, I necessarily did that till later in life. Yeah, and I think you you called it beautifully then, is have those conversations early. So I think that financial literacy, understanding money, being able to talk about money is just another skill that we should be wanting to pass to our kids in the same way that we want to teach them great literacy and numeracy. The financial literacy is just, just another part of that. And I think how we do that is by not being awkward about money. So over dinner conversations, including money as part of that. If you're going to buy an investment, explaining to your kids, well, this is why we're doing it. If things are a bit lean at the moment, explaining why they're lean, explaining how the household budget works and why when you're standing at Woolworths, they can't have that thing at the counter because there's no money for it at the moment. And I'm a huge fan of pocket money 
where the pocket money is for a specific purpose so that kids understand, huh, when that money runs out, there's no more. And that pocket money can be attached to a card because kids understand that now. And then they understand that the tap and go is not a magical thing, (laughs) that it it is quantifiable and it, it can run out. But having the conversations and realising it's a... Absolutely. So when do you think the best time is to get financial advice? And I guess, you know, a lot of us don't even think about things like superannuation or insurance until there's big milestones, like your first big career job, getting married, getting divorced, inheriting money. How do you know when to get it? And also, what's the kind of litmus test of, are you just selling me lots of products that I don't need or don't want, or they're not suitable for me, and I can't afford as well? So, I think there's a lot in that question, but I just want to know about the journey of financial advice, because most of us put it off and we pay the price. Yeah, and it's funny, it's exactly what you said, where people will wait for those aha moments, I'm buying a house, or I'm needing to save for this, or crap, I need to start thinking about retirement. So, they see... So that's kind of their aha moment to go and see a financial planner. Whereas really, if you saw a financial planner or a great financial strategist early, then the effects of that advice, particularly if you're in your early 20s, and if you can really start to understand the power of compound interest and starting early, it could really set you up for incredible success in life financially. But when it comes to product, That is absolutely problematic. And there is a commission going on in Australia at the moment where what they're finding if with the big four banks, 68% of their financial planners are are recommending internal products. But 68% of all products being sold are internal products. And 25% of that failed the better interest duty test, which means am I better off being in that product, which is really concerning. So my question when you really concerning. It is concerning. I, I think that's that's hitting the nail on the head too. There's that thing of we need advice, but we're a little bit scared because these stories are coming out and obviously there's a Banking Royal Commission at the moment and, you know, financial planning hasn't got a great rep in a way because of that product link. So how do we get people to pay for advice as well? I mean, I think that's the other question. That's a tough question. And, uh, you know, I kind of feel it like we have this reputation as a used car salesman. It is that this shady reputation. And I really want to shake that. I think how you find the right person is by willing to pay for advice versus it being wrapped up in product. And we might not love that because we're used to it being wrapped up in product. But with that comes the idea that, well, it might not be the right thing for me because they're just going to flog me what they potentially will get um, a larger commission on, which the ability for that to happen is less and less because of the stricter guidelines that are happening, certainly in Australia. But I think we have to be prepared to get great strategic advice. So yes, there's a whole lot of products we could put our money into, but the strategy advice around how much of my money should I put it put somewhere? How long should I be doing it? How should I be setting up my bank accounts? If I got a pay rise, what should I be doing with it? Um, should I go and get? Um, should I go and get um, earn more money? Should I be yet leveraging debt? So that sort of strategic advice, I think, is far more important than the, where should I put my money. So that's what you should be. Yeah, that's a great. That's a really great way to think about it, actually, because I think we're all just caught up in product, and, mm. and most of us don't. Let's be honest. I don't know that I've read every kind yeah. of piece of, you know, financial disclaimer advice that I've been sent. Mm-hmm. So having someone explaining the why would definitely help. I think make me more excited about 
the process as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's certainly my experience with clients. They want the strategy far more than they want the product. And the product's important, but the strategy is so much more important because the strategy is going to get them to where they want. And the product's just a vehicle. You know, do I want a Ford or a Holden? Ultimately, it's probably going to be the same, get me to the same place. Um, But the type of car or the where do I want to go in that car, that's that's the sexier question. That's the one we're not asking. Absolutely. So as women, we know that we retire, generally speaking, with far less superannuation. Some reports say around $120,000 less than a man of a similar age by the time we retire. Now, that's obviously due to career breaks, raising families, going into part-time work or major setbacks in life such as divorce or maybe a lack of deep financial education that will allow us to put our money into better vehicles, as you say. Mm. You've got the accounting and financial planning business that helps, I guess, both men and women, but do you see a difference in the aptitude for that hardcore money talk about where are you at and how going to get you to where you need to be? Um, absolutely not with the aptitude. Um, so our women and men are absolutely as capable of handling and dealing and talking about money as each other. Um, women, and particularly women that are in a family, often have a far less tolerance for risk um, than a man might, just simply because they're not willing to bet the house. Um, but certainly when it comes yes. to the aptitude, both are, both have the, um, have the same aptitude, but I find that women aren't necessarily as willing to talk about it um, than men might. There's this ick factor. There's this, oh, is it unfeminine for us to bring up money? Um, or is is it more that it's not really my place? There is this real ick factor. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe in a couple situation, hey, like I'm thinking, you know, the single women I know that might um, – have gone through a divorce where they may have left with not much, then that's a different sort of opportunity really. But I think when you are coupled up, there is a tendency to just want to, you know, you'll do your, your bit and if money's not your thing, then maybe default to the man, which, you know, is not ideal but I think happens more often than perhaps we talk about. Yeah, and we just think, oh, well, it's all ours anyway rather than thinking I just need to make sure that I'm looked after within this couple because that's what he would want or she would want surely. So I think if you go into it with that idea, and for me, it's if you think you might be having a child or you want a career break, start putting more money into super younger. Or when you go and sit down with your partner and decide to have a child, say, right, during the two years when I'm going to be not working or part-time working, can you split your super with me? Can you um, contribute to my super for me? Like how can we make sure that I'm not a disadvantage because of this choice? Yeah, I think that's really powerful and I guess those conversations are happening more at a policy level as well, but we're not quite there yet, but I think it's important to have them as well. And it kind of feeds into that whole idea of we've got a relationship with money, good or bad, all of us as individuals do, Mm -hmm. and it's about the value we place on either having money in the bank or possessions or experiences and that's what money allows us to do. So getting a bit personal now, what's been your money journey? How have you related to money over the years? It sounds like you had a certain childhood and I know you now, Melissa, and I know you love beautiful things and amazing shoes and uh, you're impeccably dressed. So it seems a real extreme for perhaps where you where you began your childhood to where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, what I know now though, and it's one of those things that allow me great freedom with what I do It's because I really want to enjoy today, which means I want to have great shoes. I want to enjoy, I want to have a fantastic wardrobe. Um, I don't necessarily want to eat out or go on holidays. So 
I'm not trying to have it all. I'm choosing where I want to spend my money, but I'm also investing for the long term. But what I know deep within me is that I'm not what I have. And my dirty little secret is I know that my hubby and I could sell everything and live in the little rental property that we had when we first got together a decade ago. Um, So I think when you become hyper-attached to things, when you have this almost competitive comparison culture that we're currently in where you're looking at social media and saying, well, but that's what I, where I should be at and I'm willing to spend to get there. Um, when you buy into that spending mentality, that's when you have problems. And I've certainly, if my biggest problems on my finance journey have been limiting beliefs. So I'm from the Western suburbs and I grew up with that Western suburb mentality around, but this is kind of this is where I'm allowed to be and no further um, around what I could earn and what I should have. And I can see a loosening of that now with people around me. But I, that was something that was very strong in me. And it was only when I decided to play in deep, in bigger pools and put myself um, in, the, in the same pools as other people that were playing a bigger game that I looked at those people that either lived on the eastern suburbs or uh, went to private school and went, hang on, they are no different than me. (laughs) Why on earth am I not wanting to play this big again? And I really challenged my personal money beliefs around what I was worth um, and what I thought it was possible for me to achieve both financially and in my business. And that's when things really changed for me financially. Yeah, mind, mindset's really important. Oh, I think you're right. I think yeah. social media has got a lot to hands for when it comes up up for this. Uh-huh. And I, I love the way you share your stories as well in um in your books. And, you know, it's it sort of it, what you talk about is really common sense. And it sort of reminds me of, you know, one of my other sort of finance heroes is the Barefoot Investor because mm. it just all makes sense. And we live in a world of, you know, so much consumption, so much oh, waste. Absolutely. And then people go, but I earn all this money and I'm really poor and, you know, you kind of, it's that thing of the elastic band. I remember yeah. my dad once saying that to me. It's, you know, the more you earn, you just buy a nicer car and eat out nicer yeah. restaurants. You really need to be as disciplined as you were before, have a few treats. But at the end of the day, like there's only so much you can really say, this is making my life better as well versus how absolutely how do I feel. And I think that's the Definitely. I think that's why there's a real mood towards minimalism at the moment because we can see that elastic band and we're actually really tired of running on the treadmill because we're because the advertisers are telling us that we should be having and wanting all this stuff, but we're actually realising it's not serving us. Yes. So I think that's why we're seeing this opt-out, which I love. You know, that's When you choose to opt-out, whilst I'm not necessarily a fan of minimalism, minimalism, I'm a fan of mindfulness and figuring out what what sort of life do I want? Not what sort of life do I want to be sold to? What sort of life do I think I should want? But what sort of life do I actually want? And I think once you once you answer that question, the money p- part of it just makes a whole lot more sense. Absolutely. So jumping into the generational debate, because I don't know, I find this stuff quite fun. Um, do you think mm. like the younger generations, you know, you millennials, which, you know, the, the oldest of which are sort of 35 mark now, you know, Gen Ys, you know, do they have different ideas about, say, us as Gen Xs or boomers? And can you lump people into buckets by age? Is it more about upbringing and personality and attachments to money rather than how you were raised in what era? I think it's it's really tough because I hate sweeping generalisations and I definitely don't think you can throw all Gen Ys, all Gen Xs and then all 
boomers into their own bucket and say, well, you're all you're all naturally going to behave like this. Um, I am definitely seeing that Gen Y and boomers, though, for example, behave very differently because the boomers grew up with parents that had been through the war and had seen this real lack, um, whereas millennials aren't seeing that. They're seeing their parents with a lot of stuff and spending and enjoying themselves and saying, hey, actually, I want some of that. And they want it early. Um, my experience yeah. is like, wait, I didn't even go overseas for the first time until I was 21. I was 21. When after uni, I saved for my own trip backpacking around Europe. Mm-hmm. But now that's almost unheard of. And I know that cost of living to ear pressure is one of the things why they stay home, then they travel. But I guess the challenge is how do you educate different generations with the same rules when maybe their values are slightly different? I think that's what I'm getting it definitely is, but it's also for millennials. It's what I'm seeing a lot of is they're either choosing to opt out because they honestly don't believe they're going to be able to buy their own home. So why not just enjoy now? Um, plus, they're actually more alike with the, with the boomers than they think because the boomers grew up in this period of real, you know, Russia and America pointing uh, missiles at one another and being quite scared. And Millennials are facing that at the moment with the USA and um, North Korea and so much conflict and terminal and turmoil in the world and this feeling of let's just enjoy now because who knows what three years is going to be like. Yeah, um, that makes sense. The ramp of technology. So I think it's for millennials particularly understanding that time is on your side, especially in Australia, you're having super paid into um, from the minute you started work, which Gen X and the boomers didn't have, so you actually are better off than you think. And then Gen X really is that sandwich generation where for them it, it can be incredibly problematic and, you know, we're generally a bit more cynical. <laughs> so it's actually doing something about your finances and choosing to have that aha moment earlier rather than waiting because we're going to live longer than our parents did and we want to make sure that we're not relying on our parents for inheritance in order to fund our retirement. That's a great point. So your latest book, Unfuck Your Finances, is a provocative name to say the least. Um, You've done so well with it and I see it in all these bestseller lists, so well done there. Thank you. What are you hoping to achieve by writing such a book besides us all saying that word and having to bleep out (laughs) names? exactly. Look, I really wanted us to have a real conversation about money. For me, there is so much information out there about money, you know, To me, money is very similar to food. When it comes to food, the recipe should be energy in, should be less or equal to energy going out. Yet certainly in Western countries, we're getting fatter than ever before and unhealthier. And there's all these um, diseases like heart disease and diabetes that are on the rise. Yet it really should be simple. But it's because of this relationship that we have with food that's a bit toxic. And I see the same with money. So what I wanted to do is address that. Say, you know what, we, if we can just figure out what we value, what we think about money, what we actually want to have and how to actually break the hold money has on us and then start to have that great conversation about debt and investments and all the rest of it. But essentially it's, it was starting a conversation about money that is something that perhaps a Gen X or a Gen Y had never thought about before. And that's certainly the feedback I'm getting is, huh, I hadn't thought about that or I hadn't realised that that belief was holding me back or, wow, I hadn't thought that um, the fact that I thought I should have a home, I was sabotaging that because I really don't want it because I want to travel the world, but I could have an investment property or shares instead and I'd be excited about that. So I really wanted to have this different conversation about money. 
Absolutely. And I think you've definitely um, started that conversation. And it's amazing how just by packaging something up like that, people find that much more accessible than having, like you said, there's so much information out there, but I must admit, like, it's hard to piece together. It's hard to want to be engaged because you're thinking, well, you know, that's being written because that person's selling that product or that just because they want to get lots of clicks and likes. So Mm -hmm. they're putting that on social media. You kind of want the advice without the kind of fluff and the, and the, you know, the kind of build up in some ways and I think that's really what a book like yours does and I think that's what you've been able to achieve so as I said well done thank you and I think that's why Scott Payne with the Barefoot Investors done so well because he's just said this is how it is um and his his book appeals to kind of the the family market whereas mine's more gen x gen y but two both doing a really similar thing yeah absolutely well I love you both so there you go So what rules around money do you think we can all adopt so we can enjoy that better retirement? We've touched on a little bit of the ideas that you you mentioned about, you know, maybe having investment property and being able to travel using some shares and whatever that means for different people. So some people, you know, there's all these figures like you need a million dollars to retire and then you sort of read some articles that say, well, you don't need that because if you've got this amount, the government's going to help you and you don't want to sell your family home because that might put you, you know, in a worse position. Yeah. And also we had the sense of missing out. I must admit that's a big one for me. So yeah. how do you, for example, have, you know, a really nice holiday or buy a beautiful pair of designer shoes every year and retire with enough money because if we're going to live to 100 or, you know, mm-hmm. even longer perhaps, that's a long time from when we most of us retire in our 60s or early 70s. Yeah, absolutely. So for me it's actually sitting down and thinking about well, what do I want it to look like? But more than that, sitting down and sort of writing out, okay, I'm 65 or 70 and I'm about to start retirement, what do I really want that to look like? So not do I want today, what do I want that to look like? And for some of us, that's just going to be so hard that we might actually need to keep pulling it forward and keep pulling it forward. But I think it's not until you can really start to visualise and get excited about a really super clear goal of what that retirement looks like for you, that you can then start to work out, okay, how much money would I need for that that I'm talking about? What does that mean for me today? Um, What do I need to start doing today in order to reach that Um, either what do I need to stop doing and what do I need to start doing in order to reach that and then if 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 that doesn't sit right do I need to either change the vision of what I want retirement to be because I'm not prepared to sacrifice the enjoyment today for that or do I need to go and find more income so that I can have the best of both worlds but I think we need to be prepared that we're either going to need more income now or that we're going to dial down what retirement's going to look like because if we're not prepared to sacrifice today. Yeah, I think it's the idea that you put a line in the sand, you start working forever, it's probably over. And I feel like yes, some people agree. work a day or two a week, you know, if they want to semi-retire so they've got more yeah. flexibility because they can afford it, but just keep I can't up. imagine ever not, not working. Like that for me is just not in my DNA. <laughs> so I'm with you and I – it would, my vision of retirement is, be, is more has words like freedom and option and the ability to work or choose not to work if I want to. Yeah, that's really great. So I'm a big believer that people don't get to where they are without special guidance in their life. Is there any mentors, either well-known or not, that you can draw upon that you inspired you or, you know, motivated you or taught you some of the tools which you share now? And who were they and what 
did they teach you? Yeah, so um, two of my absolute hero mentors and my grandma and my nana um, and my grandpa. So my grandma and my grandpa. My grandma was an entrepreneur, so she uh, started a cafe during the war and my grandparents were able to buy their first house off the back of her business, which I find quite extraordinary. That's incredible. Imagine that. Oh, so (laughs) cool. And then the two of them saved money on their retirement while they were retiring, so only on a settling pension. They'd go off for six months every year because they couldn't stand the cold, so they'd take off in their caravan north Um, And so they lived the life they want, but they didn't settle and they did it on a pension. So for me, they're just so total financial rock stars. And my nana um, fled Hong Kong at the war to come to Australia and to this sort of backwater, where on earth have I ended up? Oh, I bet. Imagine that. Culture shock. Absolutely. (laughs) So I totally grabbed a lot of that. That Eastern way of thinking from her, which I'm so thankful for because I really have these two completely different ways of looking at things, which have has really held me in great stead over the years. Um, but also it's the non-people in my life. So Brene Brown and Jim Collins are just two total rock stars. Brene for her work on shame because so much of when it comes to money that I deal with is about shame. Yes. And her research partially. on shame oh, it's just using that language to people when it comes to money, it's like the veil's lifted and they just say, yes, that's exactly how I feel. And Jim Collins with his whole idea of good to great and how to run a great business as opposed to putting up with a good business, he's my total business boyfriend, my business crush. I'm just in love with him. We won't tell Um, your husband. (laughs) We probably (laughs) know. Oh, he knows. We went and saw him when he came to Australia and I'm sitting up the front. If I'm here in the same room. But any, for me, it's that your mentors don't have to be across the desk from you. You know, I've taken as much from Malcolm Gladwell and his writings and Seth Godin and I, I just love these people that think differently and being able to take that on and use that in your business. So, yeah, they're, they're probably some main ones. Well, that's a very rich answer. Very much on topic. So your final piece of advice for anyone trying to win in the politics of money, what would that be? So I would say you need to face it and don't be an ostrich. So we need to actually start talking about money and facing it and realising that money is just another thing that we have to talk about, Um, to be mindful about it in the same way that we're mindful when it comes to our wellness and then to take action. Um, But for me... My biggest advice is that the thing I think we need to be aiming for is not to unfuck your finances. It's not even financial resilience, but it's financial wellness. And this concept of financial wellness, to have the freedom and options to do what you want, that for me makes money absolutely worth talking about. Just a super sexy concept. There you go. So if you do want to connect further with Melissa, her details will be on our show notes. Until next time, keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespoke comms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. 
Until next time.